Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we are going to look at Donkey Kong Country, a platform game developed by Rare and published by Nintendo, released on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System back in 1994. I'm excited to talk about that, but before we talk about the game, as is usual, we have a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 10, and I remain focused on trying to build a community around this podcast. If you would like to reach out and have a discussion or provide feedback or have suggestions around future games you'd like to see me cover, there are a couple of ways you can get in touch with me. You can either reach out via email. I do have an email address. It is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So I am really looking forward to hearing what everybody thinks. If you have suggestions, comments, feedback, critiques, everything is fair game. I am just interested in having the discussion. So I'm looking forward to hearing from all of you. For anybody who may be new to the podcast, welcome. I'd like to go over very quickly what the anatomy of an episode is because for the most part, we follow a very typical structure or very similar structure from episode to episode. We always start by talking about the history behind the game. What was the way it was created? How was it created? Why was it created? What is the overall historical context of the game in question? After talking history, we jump into a pseudo-review kind of section. I say pseudo-review because it's not like we're giving out a score or numeric rankings, but we do look at the games that we talk about from the perspective of several different viewpoints. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? We look at the sound and music. How does the game sound? What is the music like? What are the sound effects like? We also talk narrative and story, if the game has one. We also talk about the playability and controls and the overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game, not just back when it was released, but today in 2022? And we do all of that with the goal of reaching a verdict to determine how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If the game that we're talking about makes its way into the Pantheon of Classic Gaming, you're pretty much guaranteed to have a good time. It is a verifiable classic. I recommend it wholeheartedly. You should still play this game today. It is as good today as it was 30 years ago. Just below the Pantheon, we have our Golden Oldies. These are games that are still incredible experiences. I still highly recommend you play them, but they don't quite reach that Pantheon level for whatever reason. I would say that you should generally play these games, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you enjoy the genre, go for it. Just beyond the Golden Oldies, we have the Mediocre Mentions. Here's where we start getting into the categories of games where... I can't really recommend you to play it. You could still have a good time, particularly if you enjoy the genre or if you've played the game before and you want to re-experience it, go for it. But I can't really recommend these games to individuals that may not have played them before. Either they haven't aged particularly well or there were probably one or two or a couple things that may have been wrong from them or wrong with them from the start. And then finally, beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend any of the games in this category. They have, generally speaking, aged very poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. So with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Donkey Kong Country. Kong Country was a side-scrolling platform game released by and developed by Rare, published by Nintendo, for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System back in 1994. 
To understand what led to the creation of Donkey Kong Country, we have to explore a couple of different avenues. First, we have to talk about the evolution of Rare as a development company, and we also have to talk about the video game market in the early 1990s, because those two things, those two situations, are what really led to the development of Donkey Kong Country. And we will start with the formation of Rare, which evolved from a company called Ultimate Play the Game, which was founded by brothers Tim and Chris Stamper back in 1982. And this company was based in the UK and focused on the microcomputer market, most notably the ZX Spectrum, or as it's commonly referred to, the ZX Spectrum computer platform. The ZX Spectrum was an 8-bit computer platform developed by Sinclair Research back in 1982, so the same year that Ultimate Play the Game was founded, and it became very popular across the United Kingdom. It would actually become Britain's best-selling microcomputer of all time. Now, when you think about the ZX Spectrum, think Commodore 64 in style. It was a single device. It was a basically a keyboard that had a computer embedded or built into the actual keyboard structure. So it was one of those all-in-one kind of devices, minus the monitor, of course, because back then we didn't really have all-in-ones with monitors, but it was just like the Commodore 64 in style for anybody who may not have heard or have seen the ZX Spectrum before. The Stamper brothers had always strived to do things that had never been done before, or at least at a minimum, they wanted to do things that had been implemented previously, but do it better than anybody else had done it before. This was really exemplified by one of their early titles that the company had worked on, which was called Night Lore, released in 1984. It was actually one of the earlier examples, not quite the earliest, but one of the earlier examples of a 3D isometric perspective game. For anybody who may be unaware, an isometric perspective game is a game like Diablo, if you guys are aware of of that. That's a pretty popular example of an isometric game. Basically, it is almost like a a three-quarters top-down perspective view of the character. Not quite fully top-down view, but kind of off on an angle a little bit. You're almost looking over the character's shoulder as you move around the game world, but certainly not an over-the-shoulder Gears of War-style perspective. A little bit on a diagonal bird's-eye view of the playfield. That is a 3D isometric perspective. Night Lore, which was developed by the Stamper Brothers, was one of the earliest examples of a true three-dimensional isometric perspective game. Now, it wasn't the first isometric game, but it was arguably the most advanced there was a fully explorable world with interactable environments, uh, the ability to climb structures as you explore, and it really created the sense that you were really exploring a world. There were 128 different rooms that you could explore throughout the entire game world of Night Lore. And for the time, it was incredibly advanced, well beyond what most isometric games and, and what a lot of games in general had on display or had available for people when they were playing on computers. A lot of people actually consider this to be one of the most important releases in computer history because of that combination of style with the isometric perspective, the fact that the world was a true three-dimensional world, and just the way it was designed with the explorability in mind, all of the interactivity within the environments and how you can really feel like you were inhabiting a true world inside your computer. So the Stampers and their company continue to work on a variety of games throughout the 1980s, but they looked at their current focus on the ZX Spectrum as an impediment to any additional growth. The Spectrum was incredibly popular in the United Kingdom. Like we said, the best-selling microcomputer in the United Kingdom of all time, but it didn't have any market in other territories outside of the UK. The ZX Spectrum was really a UK thing. It really didn't have much in terms of marketability or it wasn't well known in the market beyond the UK. Beyond that, around this time, the video game publisher Ocean had started to enter talks to buy out the Stampers company. So with those two things in conjunction with each other, the fact that the ZX Spectrum didn't really have a ton of market beyond the UK, and the fact that Ocean was looking to buy out the company, the Stampers saw that this was not going to end well. So they created a separate company, which was effectively done in secret, entitled Rare Limited. 
That company was set up so that they could still contribute to their original company's games while at the same time insulating themselves from any sort of takeover. So this new kind of pocket company off to the side, Rare Limited, could still create games for the original company, Ultimate Play the Game, but because it was a separate legal entity, it would be protected from any sort of takeover that Ocean or any other software or development company would be trying to do. So with an uncertain future the Stampers began to look at what they wanted to do next. They had heard about this newish console from Japan with no load times, a cartridge-based storage system, and they had heard it was becoming very popular, so they decided to import a copy of the console from Japan. That console was, of course, the Nintendo Famicom, which was the Japanese version of what many territories would know as the Nintendo Entertainment System. As many know, Nintendo itself is a fairly secretive company. It likes to exert a fair amount of control over their hardware and their software. And back in 1985, this was no different. The company had claimed that the Famicom was impossible to reverse engineer. And just so everybody understands what reverse engineering is, when you have a piece of software or a piece of hardware or anything like that, a lot of times companies will protect the intellectual property behind that software or hardware, and they will make it very difficult for anybody to be able to recreate that particular software or hardware. Short of them actually licensing you the technology, they don't want people to just randomly use their hardware or their software without their permission, so they effectively have this walled-off kind of approach where if you want to use the technology, you have to license it from them. Reverse engineering is the act of looking at a hardware or software system, or really any system for that matter, and figuring out how it works and recreating all of the logic, all of the code, all of the kind of core processes, not necessarily using the source code of the product itself, but recreating it and, and basically implementing that functionality, albeit with your own code. So in that way, anything that is reverse engineered effectively operates the same way as the core product, but you haven't actually used any of the specific code or any of the specific hardware that that real product utilizes. You can think of emulators. Today, that's kind of a prime example of how systems were, were one example of something that used reverse engineering to figure out how all of these consoles worked and then implement that functionality in software as opposed to hardware. So at the time, Nintendo said our Famicom system cannot be reverse engineered. It is just that advanced. It cannot be reverse engineered. Now, the Stampers and the rest of their company must have taken this as a personal challenge because they worked on a series of demos that clearly illustrated their ability to effectively hack the system and develop software for it without any official support or development packages. The Stampers had effectively reverse-engineered the Nintendo Entertainment System, or Nintendo Famicom, in Japan. And Nintendo was incredibly impressed. They probably wanted to sue them, but they were incredibly impressed regardless. So much so that they granted the new company unlimited budget to begin developing games for the Famicom. So this was an insane offer. The fact that the Stampers, first of all, they proved that they could reverse-engineer the console— and then they get an offer from Nintendo with basically unlimited budget to develop games for the system. Almost immediately, the Stampers sold Ultimate Play the Game and its entire catalog to Ocean in 1985, and then they left to begin cultivating that new company that they were standing up, which was Rare Limited, and they did so in partnership with Nintendo. Over the years that followed, the company would release a ton of games for the Famicom and the NES including such popular and landmark titles like RC Pro-Am, Snake Rattle and Roll, which is one of my personal favorites. I used to love playing Snake Rattle and Roll. I just love the songs, the music in there, the style. That was also an isometric game, by the way. Anyway, uh, they also developed probably most infamously Battletoads, which many people consider to be one of the more difficult games that have ever been released. So that was one of Rare's products. And as the years progressed, Rare continued to have success with Nintendo's 8-bit consoles, so much so that by 1994, they were able to invest in a series of Silicon Graphics workstations for three-dimensional modeling. So it probably warrants a quick discussion about Silicon Graphics workstations in general, or Silicon Graphics, just the company. 
This was basically a company back in the early 90s that were at the forefront of graphics technology. They were the company and they were the workstations that were used to create insane special effects in movies at the time, like what you would see in Jurassic Park, which if you watch it, even today, Jurassic Park kind of holds up because the quality of the 3D animation or the computer-generated graphics and the computer animation was just top-notch. The Silicon Graphics workstations was the technology, or they that was the technology that allowed all of that to happen. And Rare was so successful that they were able to purchase several Silicon Graphics workstations, which, by the way, were not cheap. With Rare now firmly established as a powerhouse company, we can now turn our attention to the console wars of the early 1990s, which was a time of unprecedented competition between two main rivals, Sega and Nintendo. Now, the goal here is not to recount the entire console war era of video gaming. There's an excellent book that does just that, entitled Console Wars, and I highly encourage everyone to read it. That being said, the main thing to keep in mind is that back in the earlier 1990s, the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis were in constant competition with each other. Sega, generally speaking, was considered the cool console designed to appeal to teens, and Nintendo was the family-friendly console. There were advertising campaigns that went back and forth, and they were brutal, especially on Sega's end. Sega would just roast and just absolutely decimate the Nintendo system as well as Nintendo as a company in these commercials. The advertising campaign was vicious. Now, at the same time, it also led to a fair degree of technological advancement and evolution of gaming experiences because, generally speaking, competition is good to help drive technology forward. At that time, Nintendo was losing the marketing battle and the market to Sega, which was a position Nintendo had been entirely unfamiliar with. They maintained a grip on the market since they originally released the NES years earlier. They were effectively the savior of the video game home market back after the video game crash in the early 80s that was caused partially by the glut of shovelware that had been released on Atari's system. Nintendo came out in 85 and they pretty much dominated and drove the market to recover almost single-handedly. Further compounding Nintendo's troubles, though, was the fact that not only was Sega developing a brand new 32-bit console, which would eventually become the Saturn, but Sony was also positioning itself to enter the video game market with their PlayStation system. And the whole PlayStation release is another interesting story that involves Nintendo, a failed pivot to CD technology, a licensing agreement with Philips that would eventually lead to both Link and Mario on the compact disc interactive system, and a broken relationship with Sony. Now that is a discussion for another day. We will eventually talk about that. It's incredibly interesting, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Regardless, as the mid-90s approached, Nintendo was behind the 8-ball. Not only were they not the market leader, but their own successor to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the Ultra 64, which would eventually be named the Nintendo 64, or N64 for short, wasn't planned to release until 1996. Sega had continued to churn out technologically advanced games, like Disney's Aladdin, which actually utilized Disney animators to create what was an incredibly detailed set of animations for the game. It effectively felt like playing a cartoon, albeit on your 16-bit system. And Nintendo needed something that would help them not only remain relevant with the competitive market of the day, but also hold off the 32-bit consoles that would be releasing well before their own next-gen console. Nintendo turned to Rare, who they had previously purchased a 25% stake in following an impressive demo of how the Silicon Graphics 3D rendering could potentially be used on the hardware of the Super Nintendo. So let's talk about pre-rendering for just a little bit. Pre-rendering is the act of rendering a scene using computer graphics, not in real time, but pre-real-time or pre-rendering, which means you basically have this image, you have this rendered image that you can then use in a game or in a video or something like that, but it wasn't happening in real time. The technology back then just didn't exist. The whole concept of 3D acceleration, that was just getting off the ground. And of course, today we have incredible video graphics technologies that you can have real-time rendered graphics that have ray tracing and all sorts of insane effects, so much so that it almost feels like you're looking out a window into real life. But back in the 90s, 
that didn't exist. 3D hardware acceleration was just becoming a thing, but even then, you couldn't pre-render visuals nearly with high enough quality in order to, to kind of trick you into thinking, oh yeah, that's, that's ultra-realistic. And the Super Nintendo most certainly couldn't render true high-quality 3D graphics in real time. But Rare could use Silicon Graphics workstations to pre-render high-quality 3D graphics that could then be converted into traditional sprites for use on lower-powered consoles. It's effectively a trick, but it's also a highly effective trick. Nintendo remembered how impressive that technology was, so they asked Rare to create a graphically rich console-selling game based on a Nintendo mascot. That mascot would be Donkey Kong, who had been created by the legendary Shigeru Miyamoto back in the early 80s, but had really mostly laid dormant since then, other than a couple of titles like Donkey Kong 2 and I think 3 at that time, maybe Donkey Kong Jr., but otherwise, it really hadn't been used all that much. Rare was given the opportunity to take Donkey Kong and create a platform-defining experience for the Super Nintendo. And with that general direction... Rare began working on the title, which was codenamed Country, using the pre-rendered 3D technology they had previously experimented with using their Silicon Graphics workstations. Now, things weren't exactly smooth sailing. There were actually a number of individuals in Nintendo uh, that thought that the game's graphics couldn't possibly work on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Some of them said that the game almost looked too 3D. They just didn't think this was going to work, or they didn't think it was going to sell for their system. Regardless, Rare was able to get enough buy-in to begin developing the game in earnest, and despite Nintendo's general protectiveness around its intellectual property, Rare was allowed to develop the game without much external pressure from Nintendo itself. As you might guess, that game would, of course, become Donkey Kong Country. How Rare was able to revitalize one of Nintendo's lesser-used mascots is a story in itself, and the team began working on how to create a game to save Nintendo's place in the video game market. That task fell to lead designer Greg Mails and a number of other individuals across the 12-person development team. That team took inspiration from Super Mario Bros. 3. In terms of world layout and level design, the team wanted to create a game that was smooth to play, where levels naturally flowed into each other, with hidden secrets, passages, and collectibles to uncover. One of the main focuses of the game was to design each level such that a player could, with practice, maintain continuous motion through a given level, and objects and obstacles had to be placed deliberately to allow this type of fast-paced gameplay. To traverse the levels, the team wanted to include some kind of special gameplay mechanic, similar to the power-up system from the Super Mario system, such as mushrooms for growth or fire flowers, star power for invincibility, that kind of thing. Instead, they decided to introduce a secondary character to the game. Originally based on Donkey Kong Jr., that character would eventually evolve into Diddy Kong, who was Donkey Kong's quicker, more agile companion. The game's main character, Donkey Kong, went through a revitalization as well, with character designer Kevin Bayless reimagining him as a more cartoonish, larger design with well-defined features that would allow for high-quality animations. Most aspects of that design can be attributed to Bayless and the Rare team, who spent a considerable amount of time not only reviewing reference material sent by Nintendo, but also spending hours in local zoos observing various types of simians, like gorillas for Donkey Kong and spider monkeys for Diddy Kong, in order to better capture both their motions and sounds. Beyond those two characters, Rare also created a number of additional characters in the Kong family, such as Candy, Funky, and Cranky Kong, and Cranky himself was intended to represent the original Donkey Kong character from the early 1980s, albeit much older and, understandably, much crankier. In terms of character design, Rare pretty much had carte blanche to do what it wanted, though original creator Shigeru Miyamoto did provide some feedback and advice, most notably the inclusion of what would become Donkey Kong's trademark red tie. With those design principles in place, attention turned to the graphics, which once again were intended to be revolutionary. So this whole thing, remember we talked about pre-rendered -re -pre 3D graphics and sprite conversion. This is not a simple matter of just designing something and then rendering it and putting an image on a screen. To actually take pre-rendered 3D images 
and convert them into sprites that would be usable by the Super Nintendo Entertainment System required a ton of programming and conversion. It wasn't just a, here's an image and we're just going to throw it in the system. It just couldn't do it like that. You needed to convert everything into sprites, which required tools to be built that would actually enable that conversion to happen. Just as an example, a single frame of rendered graphics from the Silicon Graphics Workstation took up more space than an entire Super Nintendo game cartridge. To get these graphics to work on the system would take an act of wizardry. They literally would have to be wizards to make this thing work on the Super Nintendo. But Rare wasn't content to just create amazing graphics. They also wanted to create a variety of locations and effects across the game's worlds. So they implemented multiple environments. They created specialized lighting and weather effects and naturally progressive levels whose environments would flow into one another as you move from level to level. Now, just one interesting tangent. There were other companies beginning to look at pre-rendered 3D graphics for inclusion in their games. One of them, most notably, actually, was DMA Design, who we discussed back in episode one when we talked about Lemmings. That being said, nobody at the time was doing an entire game based on pre-rendered 3D graphics. Rare, however, was. Composing the game's music would fall to David Wise, who was Rare's in-house musical genius, and he began working on the game's soundtrack as the game's levels and graphics were being developed. Wise recognized that the game's graphics were incredibly advanced, so his goal was to do the same exact thing with the music. He wanted to push the Super Nintendo to a level that was previously thought impossible. And to do that, he began experimenting with multiple musical styles, like jazz, environmental audio, and African rhythmic drums. But early on, he didn't honestly think he'd be allowed to score the whole game. He's doing all this work, but he didn't think that he'd be allowed to actually create the soundtrack for the game. He assumed that since Donkey Kong was one of Nintendo's beloved mascots, that the company would require the music to be composed by a Nintendo composer. But after they heard David Wise's music, they were so impressed with his early work that they asked him to compose the music for the entire game. With his role secured, Wise created numerous memorable tracks for the game, with one track in particular, Aquatic Ambiance, representing the pinnacle of his work, as well as what would probably be the most advanced 16-bit audio track ever created at the time. Finally, with all of the game's elements coming together, the time had come for the game to be announced to the public. That happened in 1994 at the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, where Donkey Kong Country would close out Nintendo's presentation. As Nintendo presented the game, the sheer spectacle of the graphics and visuals made many believe that this would be a new release for the forthcoming Nintendo 64 system. But it wasn't. When it was revealed that the game was in fact releasing on the Super Nintendo and would do so later that year, the audience was absolutely stunned, and they literally broke out in spontaneous, thunderous applause when they heard that. Nintendo really wanted to make a mark with this game, so they spent $16 million just in marketing alone for the title across countless entertainment media, licensing tie-ins, toys, and other advertising streams. With a ridiculous amount of hype, Donkey Kong Country was finally released in November of 1994 to near-universal acclaim and would quickly become one of the best-selling games of the time and one of the most revered games of all time. It sold 500,000 copies in its first week alone, over 1 million copies in the United States alone by week number two, and had gross sales eclipsing both the top movie in theaters and as well as the top album in music stores, almost combined. By the end of the 1994 holiday season, it had grossed over $400 million in sales. To say this was a major event would be a severe understatement. The success of the game led Nintendo to purchase even more of Rare, the company, and partner even more closely with it, with Rare becoming the first non-Japanese developer of any software to be considered a Nintendo second-party developer. Two direct sequels would be released by Rare in the following years, and a number of spin-offs like Diddy Kong Racing and Donkey Kong 64 would come onto the scene once development shifted from the Super Nintendo to the Nintendo 64. 
Rare would further go on to cement its legacy as one of the premier game development companies of the 90s. They worked on a ton of masterpieces. They released and worked on such classics as Goldeneye, Perfect Dark, and Banjo-Kazooie, and one of my personal favorites, Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, among many others. The game, Donkey Kong Country, also nearly single-handedly allowed Nintendo to overtake Sega and recapture its place at the top of the video game market. Further, the game was so advanced that it allowed the Super Nintendo to remain a key gaming console well into the late 90s, demonstrating that it could hold its own against not just other 16-bit consoles like the Sega Genesis, but also against more advanced consoles like the Sony PlayStation. While this was mostly a clever trick versus true processing power, the fact remains that to the general public, it didn't matter. The game looked and felt like a next-generation title. While Rare as a company would go through numerous changes over the years, including eventually being purchased by Microsoft, its early successes and innovations are nothing short of outstanding. And while its legacy has been established by numerous masterpiece titles, Donkey Kong Country is undoubtedly one of the most important and influential of all. It remains to this day a beloved game on countless best-of-all-time lists and is one of those titles that will truly never be forgotten. going to shift to talk more about what it feels like to actually play Donkey Kong Country in 2022 as opposed to 1994. So Donkey Kong Country, like we talked about, is a side-scrolling platform game. It consists of 40 levels, and each of those levels are peppered with secrets, and just the whole experience is absolutely crazy. We're going to talk about all the specifics, but 40 different levels Each one had a variety of secrets included, and one of the biggest changes to the traditional platform formula that Donkey Kong Country put in place was the fact that there were two characters that you could potentially control within the game world. So I think most people are aware that in a traditional platform game, like say Super Mario Bros., you really only controlled one character, whether that was Mario or Luigi in the original Mario Brothers. Um, Certain games in the series would include Yoshi, which was a little bit of a different character, kind of more of a creature kind of thing that you would ride on. But for the most part, you controlled a character. Donkey Kong Country allowed you to control two characters, and they weren't just two reskinned characters or two characters that were exactly the same other than the way they looked. They were two distinct characters with very distinct abilities and performance. Donkey Kong was a much bigger, stronger character. He could pound on the ground to shake the screen and potentially unlock secrets that were hidden or buried underground, but he also was less agile, so he couldn't jump quite as well. He couldn't really move nearly as fast. He could roll around the screen a little bit, but he wasn't really agile or nimble. Whereas Diddy Kong was the exact opposite. He was incredibly agile. He could move faster. He could jump higher. At least it felt like he could jump higher. Uh, And he could also cartwheel around into enemies. He couldn't pound on the ground, but his speed and agility more than made up for that lack of strength. And you could switch in between the two characters pretty much whenever you wanted, as long as you had access to the two characters. So the way the game worked is in each of the game worlds, there would be these Donkey Kong barrels that if you were only, say, Donkey Kong, and you found a Donkey Kong barrel, if you broke that barrel, you would then release Diddy Kong from his barrel-based prison, and he would then join you, and you'd effectively have two characters to control. That also acted very similar to the power-up system in Super Mario Brothers, like we were talking about before, where if you 
say you lost or say you died with Donkey Kong and you had Diddy Kong, your control would just switch over to Diddy Kong. It's not like you would lose your level. Now, if both characters were eliminated, then you got to restart from wherever you were or the checkpoint if you got to the checkpoint in the level. So there was definitely some strategy at play there. There were certain levels that were much easier to get through with Diddy Kong versus Donkey Kong and vice versa. Uh, But it was a very interesting twist on the overall gameplay mechanics that were prevalent in platformers at the time. Now, also included in these levels, beyond the secrets and beyond the fact that you're controlling two characters, they also included ride-on companions. And there were several different ride-on companions you could find throughout the game. There was a rhinoceros that you could ride on and bust through walls. There was a flamingo, which was able to kind of fly a little bit in the air. Uh, You could also find an animal that wasn't a ride-on companion, but would be able to shine light in different levels. And then you also had a, I guess it was a swordfish, that you were able to swim on in underwater levels that would make traversing those levels a whole heck of a lot easier. I I might be forgetting one or so, but there were a bunch of different ride-on companions, and they all had different characteristics, different abilities that made them useful in the levels that you would find them in. And very similar to Super Mario Brothers 3, there was an overworld map that you would navigate as you would move from level to level. So Super Mario 3 had multiple worlds, and in those worlds, you'd be able to move from level to level, and then when you pick a level, you go into it, and you, you kind of go into that specific platforming level, you beat it, and then you can move on to the next world. Donkey Kong Country and the Rare Team really wanted to replicate or to, to somewhat copy that experience, and they did so within Donkey Kong Country. Each individual world in the game would be represented by an overworld map, and you'd be able to navigate that map and go into different levels as you beat different worlds or different levels. Um, Each of those levels were connected to each other. There were also some, I'll say, minor interlude kind of levels peppered in there where you'd be able to go to, say, Cranky Kong, and he may give you a hint of what to do next or a hint about a boss that was going to be coming up. Or you might go to Candy Kong. She was the way you would save your game. And you definitely wanted to save your game with this one because it can get some get pretty darn difficult at different points. Uh, you also had Funky Kong who would, able to, or who would be able to fly you from different locations to other spots that you had already visited. So those were kind of peppered into the overworld as well as you would be navigating across the different levels. Now, each world did have a boss that you would have to beat, and once you beat the boss, you would go on to the next level and continue in your journey. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the individual aspects of Donkey Kong Country, like the graphics, the sound, the music, the narrative, the overall playability, and how it felt to play the game. But before we do that, I do want to take a look at the back of the box, see what that says, because oftentimes, when we would buy games back in the uh, early 90s or the before times, before the internet was really prevalent, Uh, you didn't really know what you were going to get with a game. So you relied on what was written on the box to sell you on the experience. I will say Donkey Kong Country doesn't really fall under that kind of criteria because like we talked about before, Nintendo literally spent $16 million just on marketing the game. So you probably heard of this game before you wandered up to it at the store. I don't think there were going to be many people that went into the store and they saw Donkey Kong Country, the box, for the first time without actually knowing about Donkey Kong Country by the marketing campaign. Nintendo went so crazy, they even sent out VHS tapes. VHS being a uh, a medium for video cassettes before DVDs. I'm sure most people listening, I'm assuming most people listening know about VHS tapes and video cassettes in general, but Nintendo sent out these tapes to people that you could actually watch a little bit of the game and get hyped up for the experience. They really went all out with the marketing. Regardless, I still like reading the back of the box. So, for Donkey Kong Country, the back of the box says, Madness and mayhem in this 3D guerrilla thriller. Donkey Kong is back with a new sidekick, Diddy Kong, in a crazy island adventure. Challenged by the crazed tribe of reptilian Kremlings, they endeavor to get back their stolen banana horde. Armed with lightning quick moves, chest-pounding muscle, and awesome aerial acrobatics, our duo is ready to face their cunning adversaries. With the help of Donkey Kong's quirky family and his wild animal mounts, they squabble and scamper their way through unending monkey mayhem. And then a few bullets around the features. The most amazing 3D graphics and incredible sound ever. The biggest Nintendo adventure yet at an incredible 32 megs. Starring Donkey Kong and introducing his sidekick, Diddy Kong. 
Battery-backed memory saves your progress, which is actually a big deal because uh, without battery-backed memory, you either had to beat the game in one go or use a password system, and sometimes those password systems were not all that great. So nice that it had a battery backup. And then over 100 levels, including tons of secrets and hidden bonus levels. We didn't talk about the hidden bonus levels yet, but if you would fulfill certain criteria as you were playing through the game, there were actually hidden levels that you could unlock and then go to and play through. Not required, obviously, because they were secrets, but something cool that they embedded within the game as another additional secret for those who were really interested and wanted to really get everything they could out of the gaming experience. So with that overview out of the way, we're going to start talking about some of the specific elements of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. I'm going to tell you right now, having lived through getting Donkey Kong Country back in 1994 when it came out, when you got this game, and when you put it in your Super Nintendo, and you hit the power button, there were no adequate words available to explain what you were seeing on the screen. It was effectively mind-melting. The graphics were of a quality that nobody had ever seen. This was, it was just unimaginable to have this being played on your Super Nintendo. It was just, you couldn't imagine the quality back in 1994. Look at it today. Those graphics, they still hold up. They look incredibly advanced for 16-bit graphics in particular. And, you know, they actually kind of outpace modern indie titles that you have available today. The graphics are just that good. And I know that there have been some critiques recently that say that you look at Donkey Kong Country and it almost looks like there's different images superimposed on top of each other and doesn't look as great and everything like that. And what I will say is, well, you're probably not playing it. If you're using emulation, you're not playing it with the with the right settings or use original hardware on, on original kinds of TVs because the graphics still look darn good today. They look amazing actually today. They, they truly have held up very well. And I do want to talk about some of the specific graphical elements that were included in the game. One of those things is the variety of the levels. Now this kind of straddles the fence between graphics and playability, but we'll talk about some of the, the variety, at least in the environments here. Each level in the game felt very distinct. You know how in most platform games, where you play the game and the levels, they may have different platform elements. They may have different obstacles to get over or different worlds to traverse, but you can kind of feel it's eh, kind of similar levels. It's not like they're very different from each other. Donkey Kong Country, you felt like you were exploring a world. Every single level was visually unique and visually distinct, and each of the environments that were created within those levels really felt different from one another. And one of the coolest tricks that I thought that they did within the game was they didn't just have a collection of levels. They didn't just have worlds that were split up and then the collections of levels that you would have these eight levels, you beat these eight levels, you go into the next set of eight levels, and yes, there are common themes, but they still kind of feel like independent levels just tied together, almost like an episode of a shareware title for uh, computers back in the early 90s, where each episode would be a collection of levels, but wouldn't necessarily have a connection like you felt like you were progressing throughout a real world. Donkey Kong Country did create levels that felt like you were progressing in a real world. Some levels you would you would go through, and by the time you got to the end of the level, it had turned from day to night. And then you start the next level, and the next level begins at nighttime. And then you keep moving through that, and it eventually goes back to day. Or you would just move through a level, and you'd go, the end of the level would go into a cave. And then the very next level, you were in a cave with a minecart or something like that. Every level flowed into each other. It felt like you were exploring a world, not just navigating and beating a bunch of levels. And I think that's one of the reasons why Donkey Kong Country felt so darn good to play and why it looked so good, because you weren't just looking at a bunch of disparate elements. You were looking at a game world, and the developers at Rare did this intentionally. They wanted to create smoothly flowing levels that flowed into each other, and they absolutely did that. They also included a bunch of different environmental effects. We talked about the day-night kind of cycle, and, and this was 
something that was definitely programmed into the levels themselves from a graphical perspective. It's not like there is a a day-night clock that's running in the background, and if you leave the game on magically during the middle of a level, it might turn to nighttime or daytime or anything like that. But they did program in as you got to certain points in the level where day and night would shift. They also had different weather effects. They had rain that would appear. They had blizzards that would appear that would reduce your visibility. And all of these weather effects looked really good. And because the whole world was interconnected, there was a degree of consistency of graphics between the levels that was just unheard of. I mean, I am trying to think of another platform game that maintained such consistency and had such a, a situation where the level levels really felt like they flowed into one another. And off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of any. I mean, that's not to say that other games aren't amazing. I mean, play Super Mario Brothers 3 and, and tell me that's not an amazing experience. Of course it is. But Donkey Kong Country, with its interconnected levels and just the consistency between the levels, it felt really good. It looked awesome. It looks awesome today. They did an amazing job on those graphics. Now, switching gears and talking about the sound and the music of the game, I don't want to appear to be a fanboy. So take this with the fact that I don't want to appear that way, but I'm going to appear that way because David Wise, the composer behind Donkey Kong Country, is an absolute musical genius. I have no idea how he figured out the combination of the music that he would create and how Each musical track really embodied the environment that you were navigating in the game. The way that he combined the music with the environment is nothing short of amazing. Each track that he composed is memorable. The jazzy revamp of the original Donkey Kong theme is incredible. I I mean, that's the kind of song that I have hummed for at various points over the last almost 30 years, the way it starts with the very classic theme and kind of Donkey Kong or Cranky Kong in this case, spinning the Victrola on the record and it sounds all old fashioned and very uh, chip tuney with that you would basically hear in an arcade or on the original Donkey Kong game. And then how it morphs as the new Donkey Kong and Diddy Kong come onto the scene into this kind of funky, jazzy music that has the same underlying theme, but just remixes or or just revamps the whole thing. It was amazing. And to hear that, when I first heard it back in the early 90s, I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And when I heard it just now playing through the game again, I thought to myself, oh my God, this is amazing. It didn't age. That music is is just stellar, and I would listen to it anytime. I would listen to it independent of the game. That's how good it is. I do also have to talk about Aquatic Ambiance, which is probably the pinnacle of 16-bit audio creation. It does not sound like a 16-bit soundtrack. It is, it is just absolutely phenomenal. I have no idea what degree of sound programming David Wise had to do to get that thing to sound the way it sounds. It sounds, it transcends the game. And I can completely see where other people have said, this is probably one of the most important 16-bit tracks from an audio perspective that has been created. I agree. Aquatic ambiance is one of those things that is just, uh, you can't even explain it. You have to listen to it. And I can guarantee you that one of the interludes here in the in this episode of the podcast we'll definitely play aquatic ambiance and you will hear it and you'll you'll probably think the same thing i do which is wow that's just darn good Uh, that's not to say that the other levels and the music aren't just as good they are basically everything every piece of music in this game felt awesome and sounded awesome i can't speak highly enough about the sound and music switching over to the narrative and story this was pretty standard platforming fare i don't hold too much against a platformer that doesn't have an incredibly strong story. That's just not what they're known for. Basically, in this instance, the story boils down to the Kremlings, which is like a group of uh, reptilian crooks. They took all of Donkey Kong's bananas, and we've got to get them back. So the story is kind of very high level. Like I said, platformers, eh, I don't really need a whole heck of a lot of story 
here to enjoy the experience. It's more about the gameplay and the navigation of the game world and unlocking and finding secrets and just progressing through the game. But, you know, at least they had some degree of story. Something I did find interesting, though, is I read that Rare once, at one point, had had a 15-page manuscript detailing the story, and that eventually got distilled down to a single overview page that was included in the game's manual. So to this, I have to ask myself, what the heck was included in a 15-page story about a banana heist? I don't know what more you could have put into that story. It was pretty, pretty straightforward, There was no dialogue in the game either. It wasn't like you had a bunch of people talking or you had characters talking with each other and and figuring out what the story was. I don't understand what 15 pages of story would have done for the game. I guess it helped them in their development to try to figure out how they were going to make the different characters and, and all that kind of stuff or the environments. But I can't imagine 15 pages worth of story, actual story, and how that could have contributed to what would eventually become Donkey Kong Country. Uh, I just don't know what that would have been. It would be interesting to see, though, because I'm curious. I'm definitely curious what this epic story would have been if they didn't boil it down to bad guys take bananas, go get them back. But who knows? I wonder if that's out there somewhere. I have not seen it. If anybody knows of it, let me know. I would love to uh, take a read on that one. We mentioned this earlier, but also from a narrative and story perspective, I said that there were really nobody to talk to in the game. That's not entirely true. There are the other Kong family characters that you come across, and they provide some flavor text like Cranky providing hints for uh, when you're coming up to a boss. He might tell you how to beat the boss or certain secrets or things like that. Funky Funky Kong uh, flies you around to different levels you may have already been, and Candy Kong saves your progress, which once again... Very important because the game does get difficult. Moving on to playability and controls, this game was tight. It had a it had a really tight control scheme. The controls were super responsive. You never felt like you didn't have control over your character. There were differences between controlling Donkey Kong and Diddy Kong. Donkey was a much heavier feeling character, and it certainly showed in the game. It felt like you were controlling a weightier character. Diddy Kong was much more agile, much easier to move around, much more nimble to move around. He felt like you were controlling a much lighter weight character. His movements on the screen definitely reflected that, and the way the controls felt definitely reflected that. Even controlling the different animal companions felt weighty. They felt like they they had the right and appropriate amount of weight and inertia behind them as you were navigating with those animals. And probably one of my favorites was the the um, flying flamingo guy, because you could literally, if you got the flying flamingo, and I didn't recognize this at first, even though I played the game well well back when I was a kid, and I was trying it just now, uh, I forgot that you could literally fly with the flamingo and basically bypass whole chunks of levels. He was definitely fun to control. The rhino was fun to control. The the swordfish was actually really fun because it made what was otherwise pretty difficult water levels possible. Uh, they just all felt felt great. Now, as you navigate levels, there would also be, besides the jumping and swinging around on vines and all that kind of stuff, there would also be barrels that you could jump in that would act as little mini cannons that could shoot. Some barrels would have an automatic shoot where you would jump into them and they would automatically shoot you forward. Other barrels you had to time to shoot when you wanted it to. And there there were some pretty tricky sections with some of these barrels where in some instances, barrels would spin and move at the same time while there's like a bee flying around the barrel. And of course, you don't want to hit the bee because if you hit the bee, you lose a life or you lose your character. So there were a lot of different tricks with these barrels. And, And that was one of the ways they introduced difficulty in some of the levels was navigating these barrels and trying to shoot from barrel to barrel and continue to move along the uh, level. There were also some times where secrets were hidden just off screen. And the way you would tell that mostly is if you see a banana kind of just hanging out there and you could collect bananas, you collect a hundred bananas, you get an extra life kind of thing. If you see a banana that's hanging off screen or down below the screen, and it looks like you would die if you jump down there, most often that banana is hiding a barrel that you could jump into and it'll shoot you into a secret area that will then let you play through it and get something, whether that's more lives or more bananas or something. 
it, but they were all sorts of all sorts of interesting secrets there that were hidden throughout the game. There were also a lot of interesting mechanics that were included in different levels. And like we talked about earlier, every level was distinct. And I'm trying to think of an, a situation where a mechanic from one level was just straight up copied into another level. And I can't think of one. Every single level built on different aspects of the game as it was introducing it, but they build on each other to create brand new mechanics that were almost con- uh, combinations of some of the prior mechanics you encountered. So just to give an example of some of these level-based mechanics, there were some levels where lights would go on and off randomly. There were other levels where if you hit something, you'd be able to freeze enemies for a certain period of time before they would reanimate. There's other levels where where you would navigate and you'd have to turn lights off and on, or you'd have to navigate on a mine cart through a through a mine similar to what you might see in Indiana Jones or in the Indiana Jones movies. It, there were all sorts of mechanics that were included in the game. And like I said, they didn't really repeat. They may have repeated in pieces, but those pieces were recombined into something different. So each level always felt unique. It always felt like you were doing something brand new. The swimming, there were a couple of underwater levels. The swimming felt really good. And I think that was probably because it was combined with the aquatic ambiance sound or the uh, audio track because swimming just felt amazing. They were still difficult levels, but it just felt really good to swim for some reason. Some games don't get it right, but this one definitely did from a physics and inertia standpoint. It just felt really good to control yourself in the water, whether you were swimming by yourself or you were uh, floating or riding on your swordfish companion. It just felt really, really good. I do want to take a few minutes to talk about the difficulty of the game and the general level design of the whole experience. There were some difficulty spikes, and some of those difficulty spikes were pretty darn significant. But I will say that each level, as it introduced a new mechanic or a new way of traversing a level, they taught you gradually what you would need to complete the level. So a lot of times a platformer will drop you into a level And maybe a level is focused on, I don't know, a special spin jump move. They'll just have a level and they'll have areas where you got to use the spin jump move. Well, in Donkey Kong Country, the way they designed it was they wouldn't just drop you into a level and say, use the spin jump move. They would start you out really easy and they'd kind of have a very elementary example of what you're going to need to do. And then a little bit later, they'll pepper in a little bit more difficulty. And then a little bit later, they'll add some more, add some more until eventually by the end of the level, you have mastered whatever the mechanic is that they have asked you to use in that level. And you've mastered it in a number of different ways. And you didn't even realize you did it because the language of the game was such that each level would give, go through that same kind of process of introduction, then intermediate development, and finally advanced level gameplay for you to actually beat the level and move on to the next stage. They... They designed each of their levels like this, and it felt like they were kind of showing you the ropes, and then it's off on your own to figure out how to how to do it yourself, and it felt awesome to play. One specific example was the first minecart level that you hit, and I will say that this was probably, the minecart level early on in the game is probably one of those kind of roadblocks that a lot of people will face if they're not experienced with platformers or specifically older classic style platform experiences. So looking at that minecart level, it begins with just jumping over some holes or some minor obstacles. Super simple kind of stuff. You can jump. You pretty much have to have your eyes closed to mess up on one of those initial jumps. The game builds on that as the level goes on. So maybe a little bit later, you're jumping over an obstacle and then you have an enemy that jumps out and you have to avoid or or fight or whatever. And then it just keeps going on and on until eventually, by the time you get to the end of the level, you have to get through this crazy sequence of multi-level jumps and avoiding obstacles and enemies flying at you on other minecarts that you had to jump over and avoid. And then you're sliding down this this ramp and then you got to jump up and land at the zenith of the other ramp so that you can jump then and and hit and miss the uh, obstacle that's right at the edge of the hole that you're about to jump over. It basically built on each other until finally by the end of the level you're going through this crazy sequence with a very high difficulty but 
you kind of do it. You get through it because the game has has taught you how to do it without telling you that it's going to teach you to do it. And I thought that was an absolutely genius way to design the game. That kind of similar process is included in every single level. The game constantly builds on itself, and I thought it was absolutely awesome. The only other thing I want to mention from a playability and controls perspective is that some of the levels are pretty long and some of the levels are pretty hard. So they did include checkpoints in the game, which were definitely welcome. That doesn't really help if you lose all your lives because you're going to have to restart anyway. But if you didn't, or if you got to the checkpoint, it definitely provides a little bit of a respite from navigating the entire level at one go or in one go. So how did it feel overall to play the game? I pretty much had one big smile on my face from the beginning of the game to the end of the game, except for some very difficult levels and some difficult sections where I kind of got a little frustrated sometimes. I was like, oh, come on, man. Why do you have to why do you have to do it like like that? There was one significant, very big difficulty spike in the game, and that was as you enter the snowy world, which was one of the worlds uh, in the game. Uh, you basically have to beat six very challenging levels, one after another in succession, before they let you even save your game at all. What that means is that before you can save your game, you have to beat those six levels. It's not like you can escape in the middle of a level or you can beat one level and then go off and save and then continue to the next level. The game wasn't designed like that. You had to get through these six levels at in one go effectively. You had some lives. You could build up additional lives and things like that, but you could not save independently or in the middle of that six level sequence. Now, if you were playing it on an emulator, of course, you could use save states to make the game easier. That's not what I'm doing for this particular podcast. I really want to experience the game the way it was originally designed. So if you play it the way it was originally designed, you don't have the luxury of save states. So you are going to bash your head against the wall until you get past those six levels. But I will say it was the hardest section of the game. But once you get past it, once you get past those six levels, it felt so good getting to that save point. It was one of those one of those feelings of accomplishment that is just it just makes you feel amazing. And it just once again, after you get past that section, the smile returned to my face because I had been smiling for a bunch up to that point. I probably look like a silly fool, but that section was a little difficult, little um, little frustrating. Once I got past that, the smile returned and I went on to continue to play the game. So at the end of the day, this felt like a nearly perfect platformer. It evolved on what came before it, or it evolved the design of prior games, and it set the stage for future platform titles to come. So what do we think? Does this game belong in the pantheon of classic gaming? That is a resounding and unquestionable yes. Donkey Kong Country belongs in the pantheon of classic gaming. It is as good today as it ever was. Now, you do have to deal with some difficulty. As long as you don't remind difficulty and some difficulty spikes with your platform games, you're going to have a good time. This is a game you have to experience. It is a quintessential title. It needs to be experienced. It is absolutely, unquestionably, undeniably one of the best games of all time, and it belongs in the pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode on Donkey Kong Country. I hope everybody enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you would like to give me feedback, comments, suggestions, if you'd like to talk about gaming in general or would like to let me know games that I should cover in a future episode, there are a couple ways you can get in touch with me. You can either reach me on Twitter. I have the handle at ClassicGamingT or you can send me an email at ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I am legitimately interested in hearing what you all think and I am looking forward to receiving some notes, maybe even read them on the show if we have a chance. But I definitely am interested in continuing to build the community, continuing to have those discussions with everybody. So please drop me a line if you like. I am interested in having the discussion. 
Before we call it for the week, our next episode is going to be focused on the NES platformer, DuckTales. So if anybody has any particularly fond memories about DuckTales, feel free to write in. I'd love to hear what you think. At the same time, I know that you're probably listening to this on one of any number of podcast aggregation engines. It would be great if you could leave me a review on your podcast aggregation engine of choice. I am not looking to bolster star counts or to create sort of inflated values, but I am interested in hearing what everybody thinks because I truly want to develop this podcast into the best podcast it can possibly be. The only way I can do that is if I get feedback from the community to make sure that we are creating the content that you all want to hear. And if there are things that we can improve upon or change, I'm definitely interested in that too. I am just interested in making this the best darn possible podcast possible. I think I used possible a couple more times in there. Maybe I can use it again. But regardless, I'm just interested in making this the best it can be. And I would love to hear what you all think. We are still growing. We are still trying to develop that community. And I'm excited about what the future holds. I hope you are all as well. We'll be back in around a week with the NES platformer DuckTales. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.